Let's get into the Bible study for today. It's going to be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're carrying on in our study through this whole book. And we are going to be looking at the first 12 verses of this chapter. I entitled this Bible study, A Sacred Trust. And as I thought about it, it occurs to me that many of you in this church now, or several of you anyway, and over the years this has been true as well, many of the people who've attended here or attend here now work at the UNC Hospital or at the Duke Medical Center as doctors or nurses or scientists. And you are part of, whether you think about it this way or not, you are part of a scientific and humanitarian legacy that is carried on for centuries. Your work is performed upon a foundation of research and practice of the professionals that came before you. And, and many of you are probably making your little contribution to the body of knowledge and the, and the humanitarian legacy that is the medical profession so that all of humanity is benefited by it. And it's a stewardship, frankly. I, I know many people, and several of you, but also other people in my life, who chose the path of going into medical school and becoming a doctor or, or into nursing school or pursuing a scientific pursuit that aids in the healing of people. And they, they choose that career. They're not trying to just make a lot of money. Uh, it takes a long time to make any money as a doctor. Um, but they choose the career because they have a heart for taking what, they, what God has gifted them to be able to know and to give that back to people. Could you imagine if, if doctors went to medical school and learned what they learned just so that they could benefit themselves? Uh, uh, if Fleming de developed a penicillin because he had a, a bronchial infection, he used it, and then he threw away all the research and said, well, I'm over that now. No, people who go into these pursuits do it because it's a stewardship. God has blessed them with the intellect and with the heart to serve people and, and to pass it on so that we perpetuate the health of our, of our humanity. Well, the, the line I want to draw is this, that whether you believe it or not, you and I likewise have a sacred trust. Even that we are not all doctors, nurses, and scientists, we have a, a sacred trust, a stewardship, if you will, to take the gospel, the truth, the word of God, the precious word of God, and bring it to people who are literally dying. And they will die for all eternity without the healing power of the word of God. It's a stewardship that we have been entrusted with. And we should have the same kind of sense of duty about taking this precious collection of wisdom and, and the promise that the Holy Spirit lives within this word and works it into the hearts of people that we might bring healing and that we might bring life to human beings. Now, there is probably no one in history who had a greater awareness of the stewardship that you and I share as, as ministers of the gospel than the, the Apostle Paul. Here's this man who suffered untold persecution, punishment, imprisonment, abuse of every kind, rejected by his people, the Jews, rejected by the Gentiles as being a lunatic, and, and yet he persevered because he had this burden. He had this desire to bring truth into the darkened lives of people. And as he was doing this, and Thessalonica is a perfect example, he was often criticized and attacked for the very thing he was trying to do. And so as we're going to see these first 12 verses of chapter 2, Paul is actually making a defense of his ministry. He's 
he's answering, and you can see implicit in the remarks that he makes, he's answering specific accusations that were made about him that he was a charlatan and that he was just another religious nut who was trying to fleece the people by promising spiritual blessings that no one could see, prove, or experience. And so as we look at these 12 verses, four things come out of the text that, that become a model for you and me as we think about our stewardship of the gospel. First of all, he describes the nature of this sacred trust we have been given. And then secondly, uh, he gives us an inside look at his approach in disseminating the gospel. And then he reminds us about the message that we preach. It's very easy to get off track. This is why I asked you for your prayers this for this coming Friday. It's very easy to get sidetracked. It's very easy for someone to drill in on something that's on page 966 and forget the theme, the very message that we have been given to give to others. And so we're going to see the centrality of his message. And then we're going to see the manner in which he preached it. And I, I personally drew a lot of benefit at seeing a description of the manner in which Paul brings the gospel to people. Because we're always self-conscious about that, aren't we? So stand with me, if you will. For right now, we're just going to read the first half of the passage, uh, the first six verses. And then later on in the Bible study, uh, we will pick up the rest of the verses. Here's what it says. This is now Paul speaking to this church in Thessalonica. And he says, For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. For our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit, but as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. For neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak for covetousness, God is a witness, nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or others, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father God. We thank you for Paul the Apostle's example, Lord. We thank you, God, for his faithfulness to take the treasure that you planted in him and bring it to the world, Lord. And even as he was facing persecution and, and damage to his reputation in a place that he only wanted to serve to bring life, Lord, he persevered, he brought the truth, and we hold it now in our hands. And so, Lord, I pray, Father, that as Paul was faithful, we would be faithful to take what you have planted in us and to share that with the world. Lord, we pray now that you would speak through me, through the power of your spirit, to author words that are from you and not from me, that you might bless your precious people this morning. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen, amen. You may be seated. Well, uh, Paul doesn't mince words um, when it comes to when it comes to uh, how he feels about the gospel, he describes it very clearly as a, a treasure that has been entrusted to us, a treasure. Now, when Michelle and I were first married, our first, our first abode together was a, an upstairs apartment in a house that was owned by this older Italian lady who was a friend of our family's. She was from Trieste, Italy. Um, her family was, was imprisoned during the war. She had lots of stories. And she was a fascinating person to talk to. And very often, 
our, our conversations would turn to, to philosophy and religion. I was studying philosophy at the time and in college, and uh, we would talk about this stuff. And Michelle and I were not saved at this time. And this lady, her name was Marta, she always described the Bible. Whenever there was any reference to the Bible, she described it as a storybook. She dismissed it as a storybook. And frankly, many people in our day see it exactly the same way. Some will give it a little bit of elevation by saying that, well, it's, it's a book of wisdom. There's many wise things that are said in here that are good rules for living. But, but that's as far as it goes. And of course, then there's many people who just view it as, as crazy talk. And particularly when it comes to the origin of things, that's always where people get exercised about the Bible's account of creation. But Paul didn't see the word that way. Paul saw it. You see there he describes it uh, in verse 2 as the gospel of God. Another way to say that is the good news of God. Hey, God has a message for you. And guess what? It's good news. I mean, so when you, when you think of it in those terms, it's, it's huge that we're even entrusted with it. It's huge that he even shared it with us. Paul said this in Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. He said, But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to men, for I neither received it from a man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. Much of what we read in the New Testament came to us through the, through the hand of Paul, but through the power of the Spirit. And what he's relating in the gospel is things that God told him directly. This isn't ruminations by a very smart man, of which Paul was. It wasn't crazy doctrines that were developed that might be used for some nefarious purpose. Paul was a reluctant. In fact, he was a defiant vessel. This is what makes his, his, his codifying of scripture so credible. He didn't want any part of this. He was in the business of persecuting it. He was on his way to jailing and perhaps even having Christians executed when the Lord called him. Because the Lord knew that that very fact of his life would make his testimony very believable. And so Paul has great reverence for the gospel because of he was convinced because he experienced it. It's the very word of God. Now, if that isn't incredible enough, what's even more incredible is what we learn in verse 4, which is that it was entrusted to us. Imagine you're a 16-year-old, know-nothing kid. Your father has a Porsche 911 Carrera. He says, son, I got to go out of town. Here's the keys. Take care of this for me, will you? <laughs> Say what? I mean, right? It's... it's it's something that's highly valuable. It's very powerful. And you're entrusting it to someone of such limited base of experience and perhaps even judgment. That's, that's kind of what we're talking about here. God is taking the very words of his heart and he's entrusting us with them. And, and again, we could ruminate about, gee, God, um, this is so powerful. This is so valuable. Perhaps we should just uh, have it ministered to the world through angels. But no, God didn't choose to do that. We read there, but we have been approved. We have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. Even so, we speak not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. 
God has opened up our hearts to receive the gospel. And he has shaped our hearts to want to have integrity in the way in which we transmit it. I can tell you, the greatest uh, anxiety that I experience in my life and has been true for 20 years is doing what I'm doing right now. There is nothing that would horrify and break my heart more than if I stood up here with the best of intentions and, and I exposed a passage of scripture and I misled you. And I, I'm only human, so I, there must, be, must have been times in the past where something that I brought was not exactly spot on. And that's heartbreaking. And when I find those things, I, I typically come and say, hey, uh, not that, this. <laughs> but but the, the thing that is so great about us as the conveyance vehicle for the gospel is that by doing it, it proves out the faith of Christians. It proves out our faith to other people. It, it puts God's love on display. Why would this person bring this message to me knowing that I probably hate them for it, knowing that because they're the vehicle by which this message is being transmitted, that they get all kinds of, of uh, you know, persecution and, and mocking and the like. It, it puts God's love on display. And it also provides a walking billboard for God's grace. This is one of the great things about going back. Like uh, my hometown is Rochester, New York, but I've been living in the South for 31 years. So it's always great to go back there. Like Michelle and I were just at our 50th high school reunion. Now in high school, <laughs> I was as far away from a Christian as one could be. And um, so I go back with all my classmates and all of a sudden they hear I'm a pastor. And then to their surprise and mine, the host of the dinner asked me to do a prayer for the, <laughs> for the dinner. And uh, the only conclusion people could draw is why there's a walking billboard of God's grace because him and that was the same thing that was true about Paul him there were a lot of Christians who wouldn't get in the room with him for a while because they were fearful that he was just doing a ruse he was like an undercover cop hey I'm one of you guys hallelujah hey brother hey sister and then you're all under arrest and get in jail and so they were concerned about him but he was a walking billboard for God's grace now there's a test for this entrustment, this trust we've been given. It's called a stewardship. You know the concept well. And a steward is somebody who, uh, who takes the wealth, the value owned by another and is the caretaker of it and the promoter of it. We've been studying on Wednesday night for the last several weeks. We've been studying the life of Joseph. Joseph was the second youngest son of, of Jacob who became Israel. And he was very poorly treated by his brothers when they sold him into slavery in Egypt. And then he becomes this chief steward in the house of Potiphar, Potiphar being the captain of Pharaoh's guard. And he was so faithful in his stewardship that scripture actually tells us that Potiphar, he didn't even know what he owned. The only thing he was sure of that he had was the food that was on the table that he was about to eat. That's how much he trusted Joseph. Joseph, just take care of it. I'm a busy man. Take care of this. And he did an outstanding job. So faithful was he that he refused the advances of Potiphar's wife when she tried to entice him into some kind of illicit relationship. But his, the hallmark of Joseph was faithfulness. And this is the same concept that Paul overlays 
on our stewardship of the word of God. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 4, 1 and 2. He said, let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. Now, if you're one of those people that, you know, sometimes when you reflect on your Christian walk and the enemy loves to cheerlead you in this line of thinking and you look at your Christian walk and you feel like, wow, I haven't founded any great giant church. Uh, I'm not a missionary in a foreign country. I'm just a guy working my job, following my faith and whatnot. The Lord isn't going to be counting nickels and noses when he's judging you and your labors for the Lord. What the Lord is going to be judging you on, and I'm not talking about judgment for salvation or not salvation. I'm talking about for rewards or lack of rewards. What the Lord judges the Christian on is this faithfulness. God has created each one of us differently. He has gifted each one of us differently. Not very, 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 very few people in all of humanity were ever gifted by the Lord to be the kind of evangelist that draws millions of people to Christ. Equally, uh, there are pastors and preachers that I listen to and, and I listen to them and I say, oh, if I could only have that command of language and that command of scripture that I could convey the word of God that clearly, that powerfully, but not everybody is that guy. Not everybody is the worship leader that literally makes you want to weep when you're worshiping the Lord, not because you're worshiping that guy or that gal, but because the music is provided in such excellence that it unlocks your heart. Not everybody is that person. But God has created you for the ministry that he deems important, whether you think so or not. And so if you are faithful in what God has called you to do, like I always bring this up, but I, I so admire the people that take care of the littlest kids in there. That's a hard job. That's just a hard job. It's a, when I say it's a hard job, to, to react to everything that comes to you in a one, two, or three-year-old in love, consistently in love, in instruction, in great care, that's gifting. I mean, that, that is extraordinary gifting. But everybody's different. Everybody's got a different gift. And God promotes that in you to be who you are and the judgment that will come upon you for the works of your Christian walk will be based on faithfulness, not on size, depth, or anything like that. So now we turn to Paul's approach. And again, we look at verses 1 and 2. Paul says in those verses, For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. Paul was confident of the message and, and he was confident in the medium in which the message came. What's the medium? The Holy Spirit. Paul had supreme confidence and he was so confident that he was not dissuaded by rejection, by persecution, by people telling him you're full, of, you're crazy. He says there, for you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain, but even after we suffered before and were spitefully treated in Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. Now, he, he's talking about his experience in Philippi, and Philippi, um, if you go to Acts chapter 16, which we won't do right now, Paul's sharing the gospel, 
he's getting a great response from people coming to Christ. And the people of the town who, who, were, who were really uh, into pagan idolatry despised him for this. And he was beaten. He was imprisoned. It was really a rough, rough time. And you would think, as human nature would have it, that if you try something that brings upon you uh, mental anguish, physical beating, uh, ostracization by, by people in the town, you would say, oh, okay, that's enough of that. I, I need to chill out. Um, I'm not doing that again. That wasn't Paul's response. His manner was, was to, um, to, to be bold. He says that we were, we were bold in our, in, in our God to speak to you the gospel of God. This, this boldness is something that we need to emulate. It, we are living in a world where uh, language has now been con- decreed to be violence, real violence. If you say things that people disagree with, or if you say something that goes against the way in which people see themselves, you've committed violence on them. And the danger of of converting language into violence is that then it opens up a justification to visit your language violence with physical violence. And that's very often the way this tracks. But but here's the way Paul describes (laughs) our situation as Christians who are bringing a message that, let's face it, the majority of the world doesn't want to hear, okay? He says in 2 Corinthians 4, 8 8 and 12, he says... We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So then death is working in us, but life in you. What Paul is saying is those beatings, those imprisonments, those are precursors to my death. But I will gladly contribute my death for the life that will come in you. Now, that's, that's, that's a quality of love that only comes from above. You know, we tend to be very conditional in our love. We love people about as much as we feel they're loving us. So to think that you would risk your life, maybe even give your life, to bring the words of life to people who don't want to hear them, that could only come from God. And the boldness that Paul had came directly from the spirit that lives in him. And Paul was very careful to promote the spirit in his life to remove the impediments of fellowship with that spirit in his life. And that's the example that you and I have to adopt, is that we, we have so many... In fact, if we compared life on earth today with life on earth in the first century Rome, Roman Empire, we have so many more distractions. We are a people who are way over-entertained. We have more access to knowledge. We have more access to travel. We have so many things that can capture our attention and could invade our heart. And in the midst of that, we can lose the boldness that God calls us to. We could lose the stewardship that God has entrusted with us. And so 
These are things about Paul's, Paul's approach, this idea of believing in the message and the medium of the message such that you have a boldness that will take you in the midst of opposition. I mean, he uses the word conflict here. Actually, in the original uh, language, it, it kind of uh, harkens to a sporting event. And Paul very often used sports metaphors. You know, the kind of conflict you have in a sports contest where you're, you're striving against others. We strive against principalities and powers. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Now, those principalities and powers may, may invade the efforts of flesh and blood, and that's what we see with our eye. But what we are really battling against is the powers of darkness. And in the midst of that powers of darkness, we have to say we're going to be bold because we believe in the message and we believe in the medium. So that brings us to the message. Paul describes it in verse 2 as the gospel of God. We, we preach a simple truth. Uh, we, we can make it very complicated. I mean, if you're talking to somebody uh, for the first time about the Lord Jesus Christ and you get into the dinosaurs, stop and go back. Start again, okay? I mean, people want to drag you into all kinds of crazy stuff. I mean, the Bible said that the sun stood still for so many hours. Ah, oh, come on. Hold on a second. We'll get to that. But for right now, here's what I want you to know. You and I, before we know Jesus Christ, we're sinners. And our sin occasions death because it separates us from God. And there's nothing we can do about it. But God loved you so much that he became human flesh, came to earth, lived a sinless life, died for your sins, died for my sins, indeed died for the sins of the world, paid the penalty in full, and then God raised him from the dead. And whosoever believes on him will not perish but have everlasting life. See, here's, here's how Paul described it. This is Paul's letter to the Corinthians in the 15th chapter of of uh, 1 Corinthians. And I bet you on my Friday little thing there, um, I will get to this with this man that's uh, on the Be Reasonable podcast. This is, this is what Paul says. He's talking to the Corinthians. He says, moreover, brethren, this is, I'm sorry, it's 1 Corinthians 15, first eight verses. He says, moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand. So he's telling them, this is what I preached to you by which you are also saved if you hold fast that word which I preached to you unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. So the first thing he does is he relates the death of Christ back to what God had already said would be his plan for salvation for humanity. That God must come in human form and must die in our place for our sins. Very important concept. Cannot be left out. In fact, it's the lead, okay? And that he was buried. Oh, that means he really died. And that he rose again. Wow. That's not a neat trick. That is divinity. He rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Now, here comes the testimony. When people say, oh, you think Jesus is God, where's the proof? 
He rose again. Well, how do you know that? That can't be proved. Oh, yes, it can. Here it comes. He was seen by Cephas, then by the 12. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. Sleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me, also one born out of due time. Now, when you speak about something that has happened in the past, there's no scientific evaluation that proves that. There's what's known as a historic proof. How do we know Julius Caesar ever lived? How do we know that George Washington ever lived? You can't prove that in a lab. What you do is you look for historic proof. What constitutes a historic proof? That's credible. It's credible testimony that has been preserved in a way that, that shows a chain of custody so that you know it's genuine. This is what Paul is giving us here. And then you'd say, yeah, well, the people who bought that, uh, you know, they were nuts. Really? Because just about everybody he names here died holding on to that message. You see, there are a lot of people who will be willing to die for something they believe is true. People often point to Muslim fundamentalists who will die in a suicide bombing for their cause. They say, see, they died for their cause, so these guys died for their cause. Well, here's here's the difference, and it's a profound one. Somebody who follows the faith of Islam and is willing to die for that faith, they believe what the Quran tells them, but they don't know from personal experience whether it was true or not. In the case of the apostles, let's assume the whole story of Jesus' resurrection is false, and they knew it. Do you think for a moment any of them would die for something, for for a proclaimed truth that they knew was false? No. They died because they knew it was true. And that is, this is the best historic proof for a a fact in in ancient history that there is. There's nothing more persuasive than this. I can't wait to talk to that guy on Friday. (laughs) I mean, really, it's just like, this is the goods. This is the real stuff. It's awesome. Um, Then, you know, he speaks about the danger. Look at verse 3 of our text. And this is very important for us, too, in this day and age. For our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit. But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. What Paul is making sure they understand, because this was an accusation that was leveled against him. Paul, you are bringing False doctrine, heretical doctrine. These individuals we've already identified as the Judaizers. They were people who were nominally Christians, but they came out of the Jewish faith. And they were, they were still chapped at the fact that Paul was preaching a gospel of grace, which, of course, was in direct contravention to life under the law. And so they would constantly hit at what Paul taught as being heretical. And, and so Paul is saying, look, we, we did not come in error. In other words, we were not perverting uh, the, the law of Moses. We, we, were, we were following, we were tracking with exactly what that set up. Um, he says that it was not from uncleanness. In other words, we're not preaching a profane message, nor was it in deceit. And this is, this is another thing that uh, Paul was accused of, was that he was attempting to make his living off of the people whom he preached to 
And, and of course, this was common in their day, and frankly, it's common in our day as well. Uh, the one thing we don't ever want to be is, um, is hired servants, people who simply um, bring, bring a message that tickles people's ears so that we can be enriched by it, okay? Uh, Paul wrote this in 2 Corinthians 4, 5, and 7. He said, for you, we do not preach ourselves. Very important thing to understand. We never preach a message that aggrandizes self, that, that, that is designed to enrich self. He says, we, we, we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord and ourselves, your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For it is God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now, this is the part you all know well. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. This is one of the reasons why God didn't choose angels to bring this message. God chose people. He took earthen vessels. Our, our, our constitution is literally the elements of the earth. This is why we come from dust, we go back to dust. And we're earthen, which means we're dirty and cracked. But he places the excellence, the power that is entrusted to us, the word of God. He puts it in this earthen, humble vessel so that the excellence of the power may clearly be seen as coming from God and not from us. And this is why we should always be on our guard against Anyone who would present the gospel in a way where really the underlying uh, objective is to bring attention to the messenger. Because, you know, you don't buy the milk at the grocery store so that you can admire the carton. You're, you're buying this thing that's this waxed paper carton for the benefit of what's inside. And that's the way we bring the word of God to the world. Now, finally, um, we look at the manner of approach that Paul brings the gospel. And this, again, was very instructive for me. I hope it is for you, too. Uh, first, let's read the remaining verses of our passage. In verse 7, we pick it up. But we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. So, affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had come, become dear to us. For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil. For laboring night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you, we preach to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe. As you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his own children that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Now, as we look at Paul's, the manner in which he brings the gospel, his approach, the first thing I want to direct your attention to is motive. And it's addressed in verses we've already seen, verses three and five. Um, he, he says there that, uh, well, we've already kind of covered it, that he, he doesn't come with error, uncleanness, or deceit. He's not coming to benefit himself um, at their expense. In fact, in verse 5, he says, that neither, uh, For neither at any time did we use flattering words, 
as you know, nor a cloak of covetousness, God is witness. He also makes it clear in verse 9, you remember, brethren, our labor and toil. Laboring and toiling. In other words, he was working in his trade. Paul was a tent maker. And in many of the places where Paul went, he chose to earn his living, not take money from the people to whom he preached, but he chose to earn his money through his trade, not only to support himself, but very often to support the individuals that traveled with him, like Timothy and Silas and Barnabas. Because even though, and he tells them here, even though we have a right as apostles to take our living from the preaching of the word of God, we did not want to even give a door open to the charge that we are trying to enrich ourselves at your expense by bringing you a message. He was so beholden to the integrity of the message he brought that he didn't want to leave any chance open that that message would be discounted because people thought that he was just bringing it to enrich himself. So his motive is very pure. His motive is love. Um, he, he did not use flattering words. We've already seen it in verses 5 and 6. Um, you know, when you're speaking to the Greek world of that time, the Greeks had a very rich tradition in what was known as rhetoric and what was known as intellectual discourse. And, and they, they admired a speaker who could speak powerful arguments using eloquence and, and vocabulary and, and grammar that would, to the ear listening to them, would say, this guy is highly intelligent, highly uh, educated, etc. And, and the Greeks loved that. This is why um, when they contrasted Paul's manner of speaking with Apollos, who was a genuine good Christian brother, but happened to be one of those individuals, very well-trained, very smart, and he was very much in the Greek tradition when he preached, and so... He would bring the message with a lot of flowery rhetoric. Paul said, look, we weren't trying to gain your favor by trying to do that. And personally, I believe Paul could be that guy if he wanted to. He certainly had the education. But he, again, was so beholden to the integrity of the message that he said, look, I'm not going to put a lot of flowery wrapper on this so that people will be in, 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 enraptured by the way in which I speak. Rather, I want to speak simply, plainly, truthfully, to the point, so that they'll get the point. And so he, his, his way of approaching them was not with flattering words. He, it was more in a, in a humility of spirit that, please, give me ear that I could give you these words of life. Now, he uses imagery that kind of compares his approach to them as both a motherly approach and a fatherly approach. Look at verses 7 and 8. He says, but we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes, cherishes her own children. So affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you had become dear to us. Now, when you think about the way a mother loves children, a mother loves children with tenderness and love. A mother would really be the grace side of the law-grace balance. Certainly that was true in our home. Well, you know, I don't know. Maybe the boys would argue with that. But anyway, um, uh, the, the idea of loving in a way that, first of all, means I'm personally invested. There's nobody more invested in a child than a mother who's nursing that child. She is literally availing her body to the nourishment of that child. She is doing what good pastors should do, which is 
consume complex spiritual food and then dispense it in a way in which people who are not quite as mature can receive it and digest it, right? And, and so Paul kind of identifies him, himself as, as approaching them in a motherly way with patience, with, with uh, nourishment, and, and with kind of that tender loving care, uh, giving his life for the children that he was blessing. And then in verses 9 through 12, he, he uses a comparison that's more in the fatherly vein. Because he calls out three things about what fathers mean in our lives that have a deep impression on our children. I don't know about you people, but one of the first things that became very um, associative with my dad, he worked very hard. My dad worked very hard. My dad worked into his 80s. My dad was extraordinarily gifted in all manner of building, carpentry. He was a Joe Powell. I see you back there, Joe. Joe, in fact, Joe and my dad actually built the, uh, the storage area of our first little tiny church, and they were kindred spirits. But he worked hard every day. I, I could remember my dad would come home, and we'd all give him a hug. He'd, he'd, this is going to sound weird, but the perspiration of a working man all day was a pleasant smell to me. It, it reminded me I'm well cared for. I'm provided for because my dad is working hard for his family. And, and that's, this is something that we dads, we should be playing out for our kids because you know what it does? It, it provides a model by which they come to understand the provision of God our Father. My dad worked hard. My dad provided for our family. And then when I come to know God of the Bible, it's like he is our provider. Jehovah Jireh, our provider. And you, you, yeah, I know what that's all about because my dad was that guy. I mean, this is dads, this is what we should aspire to, is to show that to our children. The second thing, and he kind of brings it there in verse 10, you are witnesses in God also how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we have behaved ourselves among you who believe. Our conduct as fathers is the most persuasive thing that we can bring to our children. You, you can pontificate all you want, uh, you, you could direct them to great sources of morality and conduct, but they're watching you. Our kids watch us like little hawks. And it's amazing things they pick up on that kind of stray from what we say is important. And it's incredible how they see it and remember it. Yeah, Dad, well, I remember the time when you blah, 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 blah. Go to your room. Um, you know. <laughs> but, but our conduct is so vital to forming in their mind a paradigm for living according to the Lord. You can say you love the Lord to your blue in the face, but if your life doesn't evidence it, kids aren't going to get it. They're going to believe the gospel they see before the one they hear, and that's true of every one of us, right? Uh, which is why Christians have to constantly be on their guard. Now, the third thing is our words. As long as they match the walk, you can talk the talk. Verses 11 and 12. As you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his own children. Fathers should speak truth into the lives of their children. As long as they don't undermine what they speak with their conduct, we should be speaking into their lives. We should exhort, we should comfort, we should charge every one of them as a father does his own children that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Sadly, many parents shy away from the discomfort 
of the exhortations, corrections, and directions that we as parents should give our kids. Because we know we're going to get a, a hard blowback because the world is leading them in another way. And the kids, once they're you know, out of the sort of very early years, they're in the world more than they're in your presence. And so the influences that you make when you have them in your home had better be profound, you better be consistent, and you better be willing to stand strong. Because if you don't, the world's going to capture them and you won't get them back. And so Paul is telling him, look, we did that. This is who we are. This is why we did what we did. And so he's answering these charges that were made against him. But at the same time, he's giving us a beautiful roadmap for the importance of what we have it's entrusted to us as a stewardship, how we should, what the message is, how we should deliver it with motive, with boldness, and, and how we should just love on the people to whom we bring it to. It's so important that our motivation be to love other people. Great example here. Let's, let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the means by which the word is transmitted. And that is you again, your Holy Spirit. And what a joy and a privilege it is that the Holy Spirit lives in us. The Spirit of God lives in us and moves and guides us and directs us. If only we will let him. And so, Lord, as we sit here together in this room as brothers and sisters in Christ, I pray, Lord, that you would move in us to be vigilant, to remove these hindrances of the world that can tamp down the power of the Spirit that lives in us, Lord, that we might be able to be faithful stewards of the gospel of God, this treasure that you've placed in our earthen vessel. Have your way with us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Enjoy the day.